0: Hey, it's a good weekend. Football's back. Amen? Yeah. You know, football interests me uh, because when it comes to uh, sports, it's one of the most violent sports that there is, right? There's a lot of suffering in football. As a matter of fact, if you even watched a little bit of football uh, yesterday on Saturday, uh, you would have seen quite a number of high-profile players get knocked out of the game, and we have no idea when they're going to come back. But the reality uh, of those players is that just comes with the territory, doesn't it? I mean, they know when they sign up for the game that there's going to be some... Suffering involved, like whether it is you have to wake up to do two a days back in the day, right? When we were playing ball, you had to get up and practice all day in the 120 degree heat of Texas summers, uh, or it's the uh, commitment of hours and hours and hours of film study and practice. Uh, and the inevitable injuries that happen, coaches screaming at you. Anyone resonate with that one, regardless of what sport you played? Yeah? Uh, These are just things you know, like when you sign up. Before you sign up, uh, you know these things to be true. There's going to be suffering. I could probably get hurt. Uh, things can happen, and I just deal with those things because I accepted them before I took the commitment, right? Those are things that we know. Uh, There's also a lot of discipline involved in football. Now, I'm not talking about your commitment to to do things. I'm talking about discipline. Like, you have coaches, and you know what coaches' jobs are to do? To discipline you into doing the things that you ought to do. Uh, You even have this whole group of people that are there on the field on the day of the game that have striped uniforms called referees, and you know what they do? They make sure the game is played by the rules and the roles and they have these cute little yellow things that they throw up when they get real mad and upset about things. Uh, and uh, you're penalized for them, right? You literally have a whole crew in football to discipline you, to enact, here's what's going on, here's how you do this, uh, and if you don't do it, you're going to get disciplined. And you can even keep going to the NFL, where if you're not doing the exact right things, if your uniform is out of place, if you make a remark that isn't appropriate, you get a nice little slip in your locker uh, the next week, and it tells you how much the NFL has fined you for improper uniform attire, or things you did or said. Uh, and so there's this, this whole uh, swath of discipline in, in football that we don't even be aware of, but you committed to it anyway. You, you, you do these things, and they're not going to stop you from doing it. I know this to be true because popu- uh, football has never been more popular than it is today. Right? Uh, football, college football, professional football, high school football in the state of Texas. Right? There are more people who play the game and attend the games today than ever before. And we look at things like discipline, and we look at things like suffering, and we just kind of say, that's just part of it. And so we do it, we do it anyway because we, we love the game, because we're committed to the game, because it's something that we appreciate and we want to, to do. And at the end of the day, when something bad happens, when somebody gets penalized, you just say, it's part of the game, goes with the, the territory. No. Now, the whole point of this is to uh, look us in the eyes from a biblical perspective and say, you know what? You know what happens in our faith? Uh, God's discipline, right? God disciplines us, right? God disciplines all those that he calls his children. So we understand that that's part of being a Christian. And there's something else that's a part of being a Christian that we often don't like to admit, uh, and it's suffering. When we look through Scripture, suffering is found on almost every single page. uh, And we often uh, highlight uh, and talk much about things like we will this morning, like the Exodus. The whole Exodus was because there was 400 years of suffering, right? And we talk about it, but we don't really apply it to our lives to realize, hey, you know, to be a person of God, to be a people of the promise, uh, there's some things that just comes with the territory of being part of the promise. And one of those, or two of those, is I'm going to suffer. That's part of being a Christian, right? And I'm going to be disciplined by God, right? Do you, see, do you see the parallels here. Same with the football, and no one even thinks twice about it. Uh, and the same goes with our relationship with God, but when those things happen, we do think twice about it. Why am I being disciplined right now? Well, because God has commands and laws and rules and uh, he's not mad at you and angry at you because you're not following, but he's like, this is the way that you follow me. This is the way that that you follow Christ in righteousness. And so when you're not living that, it's better that God would discipline you and not having you being a wayward child, but that he would bring you into his will and into his good promises that you would continue to walk in them. But we ask questions, why? Why do these things happen? Because that's a part of what it means to be a person of the promise. And that we should count that cost, which is exactly what Jesus says. Count the cost and understand the commitment that you have made before you make it. Because this is what it means to be a people of the promise. And so what it should do, especially suffering uh, specifically and the discipline that we have, it should do this in particular in your life. right? It should allow your trust in God's promises not to waver. Right As you, as, as a person of the promise, because we're, we're going through a sermon through the genealogy of Matthew called People and Promises, we can see God choosing people and giving them promises all throughout history. And we are, if you're a Christian in here, if you've turned from your sins, placed your trust in Christ, you are too a people of the promise. And when you're a people of the promise, you can do this. You can trust God's promises in Christ. And you should never waver in these promises, even in the midst of suffering and even in the midst of God's discipline. Those things are just part of faith They're part of our relationship with God, and it's a blessed part. And this morning, we're going to continue our survey through the line of Christ, and what we're going to do is we're going to follow the struggles of the line of Christ, and we're going to see Israel struggle to trust God's promises amidst suffering and amidst the own discipline that God gives them. In their lives, And so what we're going to see here is we're going to look at the lives of uh, the people that we just saw in verses 3 and 4, particularly uh, the lives of Hezron, uh, Ram, Amenadab, uh, and Nashon. We're going to look at their life. And, and the reason that we're going to do that is just as important as the descendants of Jesus are the events that took place in their lives. And that's important because the events that took place in their lives show God's covenant-keeping promises throughout history and that's what's important right it's God had given us a promise through people uh, and he's carrying this out and acting it out through historical events and so what this sermon series should do is give you a robust trust and faith that what God says he's going to do through his people he's going to accomplish no matter what and there's going to be discipline there's going to be suffering but God's promises are going to prevail a hundred percent of the time and so what we're going to look at this morning, we're going to go through uh, the suffering, right, the discipline, uh, specifically the suffering over the 400 years that they were enslaved into Egypt. We're going to look at the deliverance from the Egyptians for, or, uh, of Israel from the Egyptian captivity. And we're even going to look at the 40 years wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience. Uh, and we're going to stop right before they cross over the Jordan into the promised land. Uh, and this time takes 450 years. Did you know, like, when we look at Genesis or uh, Matthew 1 3 through 4, we're, we're covering about 500 years of history. And you're like, wonder, why are we taking so much time in the genealogy? Because those four names, that's 500 years. That's twice as old as America. So it's important that we take time, we don't just read through this genealogy, but we zoom in and say, what were the promises that God was fulfilling? How did God work in the lives of actual people to fulfill his promises? Because when you know those things, you can walk in those promises and say, "Uh, I know things seem strange sometimes. I know God doesn't, doesn't seem like he's working through long periods of time, but he is. And you can walk in those promises and trust that God is going to work them out in your life, in the life of this church, and in the world that we live in. And so, a little bit of historical background. Here's what you need to know. Uh, The end of Genesis, which is where we got last week, that's around 1800 BC. Okay, so 1800 BC is the end of Genesis. And uh, it's really the the death, well, I guess, yeah, end of Genesis and then the death of Moses. So, the end of Genesis ends with the death of Moses. Uh, sorry, Joseph, man, Woo! all right, death of Joseph, and then the birth of Moses happens around 1525. So 1525, Moses comes on the scene, and that's near the end of Egyptian captivity, and that's important because there is a long span in between the time that Genesis ends and the time that the book of Exodus begins, okay, and if you're looking at the genealogy of Matthew, there's some names that you can't really pinpoint into Scripture, And some of those names are the ones we're going to deal with today because there is 275 years in between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus where Moses was born. And we have to say what was going on in that time period because we have these names in the Genesis. And here's why that's really important for you if you don't know these names are there. America is 246 years old. And so just to skip over these three names, because it was 275 years of history, would be equivalent to you and I skipping over all the history of the United States of America. And we wouldn't want to do that, would we? We wouldn't want to skip over the whole United States history. And so it's important for us to understand there was 275 years, longer than the entire existence of our own country that we live in, that we have the lives of Hezron, Ram, and Amenadab. Now, here's something, a little sidebar. It may look like God's not doing anything, right? He didn't even record this in Scripture. We don't even see this 275 years. But those three people were still given the promises of God. Those were still people of the promise, even though we have nothing recorded about them. Now, why is that important to you? Uh, Because you're probably not going to be written in any history books at the end of your life either, right? Uh, You're definitely not going to be in the Bible. That thing's been closed, okay? Uh, And so the reality is, is your life may seem a lot like Hezron, Ram, and amminadab They don't really talk about me much, but I'm still one of them, right? And that's the reality that we all get to live in is, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be the most famous pastor in the world. I'm probably not going to do a lot of really awesome things in, in the eyes of the world. But what I am is the people of the promise. And, and what I am is uh, the coming uh, fulfillment of the kingdom of God here. I'm going to be a part of that. And so are Hezron and Ram and Amminadab. even though we don't see them in Scripture. They're still going to be a part of God's kingdom, now, here's why that's also important, and we'll jump into this in a couple of weeks, but it's simply this. Uh, when you guys, when we look back at the Old Testament, we say things like this. Well, how could God not have, uh, how, could, how could all God's promises not have been seen by the Is- Israelites? How, how did they not just trust God? Look what he did over and over and over again. Those foolish Israelites, how many of us have done that before? You read scripture and you're like, idiots. You're like, those fools, right? But sometimes you don't realize the time span, right? I mean, you just read and you just think, well, the next day, Moses was born. And then the next day, David was born. And like, you don't realize that even in this moment, there's 275 years of history that's not even accounted for, which is important for this one reason. Uh, Israel had periods of time where they thought God wasn't working too, and they doubted. Uh, And you right now Uh, even though you're on the other side of those promises of God in so many ways, uh, you look back and say, look how God was faithful to Israel. But Israel didn't know that in the day-to-day stuff. They had to trust God in those promises. Uh, And all those promises, the Abrahamic promise that they were going to bring him into the land, they didn't have that promise yet at all fulfilled. And so they were questioning every day, are we ever going to get into this land? Are we ever going to be out of the Egyptian slavery? Are we ever going to get out of these situations that we're in right now? And we look back and say, duh, look, All right? But you get to, it's called chronological snobbery, right? I mean, you're over here saying, you're so stupid, you know, you're dumb, and yet, like, you weren't there, so you don't know. In the same way, uh, we can call ourselves stupid because we have some promises, too. Jesus came to save and seek the lost, he is coming back to redeem his people, he is going to bring a new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem, and he's going to slap it right here, and he's going to rule over the universe forever and ever and ever. Guess what? Those are, the same, those are promises that are going to happen. And how many of you every day sit and say, I don't know. When is that going to happen? Is that ever going to happen? I don't even know. Like, and, and what's going to happen is we're going to look forward in the future, and we're going to be in that, and you're going to be like, idiots. <laughs> idiots, they didn't see it. But it was, it was obvious God promised these things. So you see how we're in the same boat here. Right? These promises that we're looking at in the Old Testament should give us faith an eager expectation that what we can look for moving forward is going to happen because God has been faithful always, and God is going to continue to be faithful. And so when he says he's coming back, I believe he's coming back, right? When he says he's going to rule over the the world for a 1,000 years, I believe it because he's got to fulfill some of those covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant. Those things haven't been completely fulfilled yet because there isn't a king eternally on the throne forever in the land that God had promised them. But there will be when Jesus comes and he rules on the earth. And then when he puts everything back where it needs to be, uh, he's going to uh, bring the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. We're going to sit on it. We're going to live in it. We're going to be a part of it. That's God's promises fulfilled. And so as crazy sometimes as you think, okay, that's a lot, Pastor Hayden. That's, that's some bold promises. Same bold promises we were given here. Those are just eschatological. Uh, these were earthly and if God can bring the earthly things about, he can bring the eschatological things about, the, the last things, the things that are going to come. All right, you see what I'm saying, Israel? All right, all right. see what I'm saying? We got to trust in what God's doing. And that's why we go through the genealogy, because it's exactly what Matthew is wanting to do. Trust God, look at his plan, look at his promises. Christ is a fulfillment of those promises. Matthew, that's what he was doing. That's what we're going to do. All right, so let's look. You're looking. Uh, I'm going to give you an overview of some things, but just know that uh, during the Egyptian captivity which is what we're going to jump into, which is really the beginning of, of Exodus. Uh, we already see like Perez, Hezron, Ram, and Aminadab. Hezron and Ram probably dead by this point. Aminadab probably going. He's probably old, probably really old. Uh, I don't know that to be a fact, but that's probably, if you look at the historical lifespans of that time, uh, Hezron and Ram probably gone. Aminadab, uh, he's old. He has a son already Uh, in in Nashon. So what we're going to look at is the exodus from Egypt. We have this long time span of nothing going on, and everyone's like, what's going on? Uh, Remember, God had promised in uh, Genesis 15 uh, that Egypt would be, or Egypt would enslave Israel for 400 years. I remember that promise from last week. So now we're at the end of that, and here's what's going on. Here's God coming on the scene saying, I'm here, and I'm faithful to my promises, and so here we go, okay? You have the slavery of Egypt in Exodus 1. We see, uh, you know, the Pharaoh forgot Joseph, right? Forgot Joseph and his deeds uh, because that he had died, and there's a new Pharaoh in charge, and so they forgot all about the things that Joseph had done in the land of Egypt, and so they disdained Uh, Israel, because they were multiplying and growing, and they were a nation. Uh, And if you read in Exodus, the nation was about the size of of a large metropolitan city in America, like a Chicago or like a Houston. Like That's how many people were in Egypt, in the land of Goshen, who were Israelites. It was about that many people, a big, big place, big people. And the uh, the Pharaoh was like, listen, we got to figure out how to control these people lest they overtake us. And so uh, they make a decree that All males need to be killed so they can't continue propagating their seed. Uh, and then, in the midst of all this, Moses is born. And Moses, right, who uh, isn't the chosen seed—he's actually a Levite. Not even, he's not from the tribe of Judah. Uh, but God decides to use him. Uh, so he's born. They put him in a basket in some reeds, uh, and then he becomes uh, one of the princes of Egypt because uh, Pharaoh's wife takes him in, takes care of him for the first forty years. And so that's what we see as Israel is into or towards the end of captivity, and that's like a lot of years that we just talked about, but you get the point, okay? And so Moses is born, he's saved, he's a prince of Egypt for 40 years, uh, and then as Moses about 40 years old, he uh, sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew man, and so he goes, uh, you know, like, like any, any person who would do if somebody's getting beat, he goes and takes care of it, but he kills uh, the Egyptian, right? He kills the Egyptian, Pharaoh finds out, Pharaoh wants to kill him, and so Moses runs to Midian, And he runs to the wilderness in Midian, and for 40 years, he's now in Midian. So we have 40 years, he's a prince of Egypt, 40 years, he's now in Midian. And then he uh, meets, while he's in Midian, when he flees there, he meets uh, Jethro, his father-in-law, well, his soon-to-be father-in-law, because he gets married to one of Jethro's daughters. And it's an interesting fact, Jethro is a priest in Midian. And so there there you go. That's just a smart fact. Uh, He's a priest in Midian, and for 40 years... Moses is shepherding the flock. Now, why is this important? Midian is in the wilderness. He's shepherding a flock in the wilderness. For how long? Forty years. Okay, what's Moses going to do in a little bit? Shepherd God's flock in the four? All right. All right. You already see God's up to something. Okay, we're already seeing it in the text, okay? And so that's what he's doing. Then God prepares to lead Israel out of Egypt. God made the promise, I'm going to lead you out. I made promises. It's going to be 400 years and, and no, no longer. And so we see that happening, and then God calls Moses in Exodus 3 uh, in the burning bush, and then after that whole thing, God says, you're going to go and you're going to get my people out of, out of slavery. And then Moses returns to Egypt, and uh, remember, at this time, you have Aminadab, who's an old man, and Nashon, who's probably a little, he, he's you know, kind of middle-aged, you know, maybe 20, 30 uh, my age, something like that. Uh, and so we have those, and that's, these are the people of the promised line, and they're actually in the slavery dealing with these things. And then Moses comes back, and Moses returns to Egypt. And at this time, you can see through Exodus 5 all the way uh, through Exodus 6 that uh, Israel is suffering pretty terribly uh, in Egypt. Uh, and then Moses and Aaron, they go. Moses didn't want to do it by himself. He felt incapable. Amen. We all feel incapable. He grabs Aaron, and Aaron and, and uh, Moses go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, right? And, and Pharaoh's like, yeah, yeah, no, not happening, okay? And, and we see all of these things happening, uh, that Egypt, that God's people are in slavery, they're in captivity, and there is one who is going to lead them out of captivity and lead them to the promised land, okay? So that's what you have to know because here's what's gonna be really, 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 really important. The whole Exodus account, and we're not just talking about the Exodus, them crossing the Red Sea, the whole Exodus account from slavery into the promised land, that whole Exodus account is what the Bible is all about. The whole Bible points back to the Exodus. And I'm not talking about like figuratively points back, or you can draw the lines. All the prophets, Matthew and the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, all the way into the New Testament, we can read Hebrews and Romans, they're all making statements and, and uh, definitions that point back to the Exodus Every single one of them. So the Exodus, for you and me, isn't just another nursery story. It's not just another Sunday school lesson. The Exodus sets up every bit of the biblical narrative. All the rest of the Bible points back to Exodus over and over and over. And we don't have time to go through all those, but you're going to see that playing out as we go through Matthew and just as you sit under biblical preaching for a very long time. Okay? Uh, Because we have to understand, uh, when we look at Moses, right, Moses was a Christ type, right? He was a type of Christ. And so when Moses comes on the scene, just give you a couple of parallels between Moses and Jesus. Ready? Uh, Moses gave us the Mosaic Covenant, right, which is the Ten Commandments. He gave us the law. When Christ came, he came to fulfill the law. Oh, called the new covenant. So we have the old covenant from Moses. We have the new covenant from Jesus. It's already getting cool, isn't it? All right. Uh, Moses leads people out of slavery. Jesus leads people out of Slavery of sin, okay? Uh, Let's see. Moses was called out of Egypt. When Jesus was born, what does it say? God, he sent him to Egypt because of persecution. Oh, interesting. All right, And then he says, out of Egypt I called my son. And so we have Moses being called out of Egypt. We have Jesus being called out of Egypt, okay? Uh, We have Moses who wrote the Ten Commandments. And then we see at the first part of Matthew, Jesus said, I came not to abolish the commandments, but to fulfill the commandment so we see moses as his predecessor who who fulfilled he's fulfilling this promise of god in his uh, in the way that god has called him to but he hasn't yet fulfilled them completely and then jesus the better moses who's going to take this people out of captivity and into freedom is the complete moses is the better moses he's the christ who comes and fulfills all these things Do you see that already it gets crazier okay uh I love this one. Okay, when Jesus uh, was before he started his ministry, uh, he was sent out to where? Where? The wilderness. How long was he there? 40 days. All right, and he was tempted by Satan, uh, and you know what he quoted? Deuteronomy eight: Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, uh, Moses right led Israel to the. For, forty years. And while he was there, God did what? Fed them with manna. His word. Gave him his word. Gave him the promises. Man didn't live on bread alone. Israel didn't live on bread alone. Israel made it through the wilderness and into the promises by the word that came from the mouth of God. Right? So I just wanted to show you that even the gospel writers, are every time they're talking about Jesus and how he is fulfilling these covenants, they're pointing back to the exodus. They're pointing back to the wilderness. They're pointing back to taking people out of slavery into the promised land. That's what the New Testament is about, just in the eschatological sense. And so we have to know that. And that's so important because when we see the exodus, the whole exodus is marked by suffering. Right? It's marked by suffering. We see hundreds of years of suffering. The whole thing is about the suffering of of. Israel in Egypt. And the whole thing about us is that we suffer under the slavery of sin and that Christ had to suffer on the cross for the propitiation for you and I to have a substitute for our sin placed on him. And so all of this has to do with suffering. And so what I'm trying to say, it is point number one, and I want you to write it down this way. You need to entrust your suffering to God. Because what I'm afraid that's happened over uh, the past few decades, maybe the past hundred years, especially in Christianity here, uh, in a place where suffering is mitigated, right? we try to cover up suffering. When people die, we put makeup on them. Right? Uh, you know, uh, when, when people get hurt, we try to cover it up. We don't like talking about bad things. Uh, and the problem with that is, in our churches, we often don't talk about these things called suffering when Scripture talks about them all over the place. Actually, the whole central theme of Scripture is the suffering. Of people under slavery, under sin, and then the suffering of Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And so, what we have to understand is your suffering isn't just a, is this just, just not just a fleeting thing that you try to forget about or don't think about? Like, your suffering in the will of God is producing something important faithfulness, God's will being fulfilled in your life, all those things, suffering happens. And if we don't take that into account, the problem is, is every time we're in suffering, we're going to think somehow we're outside of God's will. And that's the problem in our Christian faith is anytime the suffering hits our lives, we can't immediately first come to this conclusion that I must not be doing what God wants me to do because now I'm suffering. Well, what about Egypt? What if they thought that? What if Jesus would have thought that? I'm suffering. I can't be doing God's will. No, literally, Jesus says, like, God, not my will, but your will be done. And God's will was Suffering right the point is in your own life we have to understand that suffering like in football right it's just part of it's part of the game suffering is it's part of the christian faith and we see that even in the line of christ as we see amenadab and Nashon coming on the scene they're part of the suffering and so as a nation and Amenadab are sitting in the, uh, in the Egyptian captivity and they're seeing all the bad things that are happening, they can sit here and doubt and say things like this. Well, God's not being faithful because we're all suffering. Well, we're sitting here and we're God's people. We're the nation of Israel. Look, we're, we're here. God has promised us all these things. Well, why isn't he doing it? Well, that would be the wrong attitude because they have to think this is part of God's plan. It must be part of God's plan. The suffering that we're going through must be a part of what God is trying to fulfill in the world. Same for us. Right? Our suffering is producing something. I want to take you to a text. I want to you to flip to Romans eight. We're not going to flip all the way through the New Testament, but we'll at least hit some verses in, in uh, the New Testament. Flip to Romans eight. Romans eight. We'll we'll look at verse twelve, and we'll go a little bit. Th- we'll go to eighteen, perhaps. Romans eight. <clears throat> Follow along there in verse twelve. It says this. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For we are all led by the Spirit of God, our sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of... What does that say? Slavery. Slavery. Interesting. Interesting uh, exodus word. Interesting word that leads us back to the... Slavery of Egypt under the bondage of the Egyptians and how we are, have been freed from the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoptions of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, the Aramaic word for, God, uh, for father. So it's father, father, Abba, father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So we've got to this point saying we're, like, we're children of God. We're God's people. We're the people of the promise. We've at least gotten there uh, through verse 16. So 17. If we're children, if we're heirs of God, and we're fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. Isn't that an interesting text to look at? I mean, it, all it said was, like, hey, we're heirs of God. We're people of the promise. God has saved us. He's broken the bondage of slavery of sin in our lives. So he's brought us into His family, provided that we suffer. Provided that we suffer. Like, as if, if you wouldn't suffer, there is no salvation. You see... The problem is when we look at Scripture, we have to understand that there is is a, a relationship between being a child of God and the suffering that we have in our lives so that we may be glorified with Him. There is something in the glorification of ourselves that suffering sets up in a perfect way. Okay, Israel did it. Right, The reason we love the Exodus, why? Because they were enslaved for 400 years and God was faithful and brought them out of that. Their glorification of them being brought out of slavery was that much more important because of their suffering. And in the same way in our life, the, the taste of heaven, right, the experience of eternity with God is going to be so much more glorified because of the suffering that Christ had to go through and the suffering that we go through here as people of the promise that when we get there, we're going to say this was so much better. You have to include suffering. You have to have space in your theology of God for the suffering of the saints, that we would all participate in the sufferings even of Christ. And then in verse 18, he says, and this is how you should look at these sufferings. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Isn't that great? Suffering is going to happen, but it's not apples and apples. It's apples and prunes, okay? And no one likes prunes, right? So, like, I got these apples, that's eternity, and I'm eating these prunes right now, and it's like, okay, like, this right here, what I'm dealing with on earth, not even close to what I'm going to experience in eternity. Same thing in the life of Amenadab and Nashon. They got to sit here. This suffering that we are, are in right now have n- nothing to compare to the glory of God revealing the promised land to us. And not only that, even in the Old Testament, they knew that it wouldn't just stop in at the promised land. But there was more promises after that, and it was their own presence of God for eternity. And so they just knew that where they were in the present was not worth comparing to what God was going to do in the future. And so for you and for me, it's the same promises that we've seen throughout all of Scripture. And we have, to, we have to rest on this church, that God's primary goal is not to stop your suffering. All right, can we, we, can we at least get to that place? Like, it's not. And here's the reason why. If you go to a church and they're saying, well, God wants to end all of your suffering, all you have to do is say, general revelation. Who has watched someone suffer? Who has prayed for someone to stop suffering? Who has prayed for someone that, that God would take their suffering away and God didn't do it? Anybody ever been in that boat? I've been in that boat. All right, I watched my, my grandmother die. On a gurney, I have an unsuspecting issue uh, that was just an absolute, an absolute uh, act of God. And I'm like, God, why will you save her? When you save her? And it didn't happen. So either God isn't faithful Or these things happen in life, and we are are faithful because God has already promised those things to happen. Do you see what I'm saying? We can have a stronger faith when suffering is a part of our theological framework. Because when suffering isn't a part of our theological framework, we have weak faith. Because what we see in Scripture, or at least what we think we see in Scripture, doesn't line up with what we see in reality. And what I'm trying to say, and what I hope is being revealed to you very clearly, is you can have great faith in God. Because suffering is a part of reality, and it's a part of what it means to be a person of the promise. Isn't that that great? Isn't it bitter but sweet? Isn't that what that is? His goal isn't to stop your suffering, it's to fulfill his good purposes in your suffering. How many of you have suffered personally and you came out on the other side and you said, wow, I don't want to go through that again, but I'm so glad it happened. Anyone in here, in that place? Every single professing Christian has that exact testimony. And if there wasn't suffering, there isn't faith. Your faith is proved in your suffering, it's refined in your suffering, and it's elevated in your suffering. And don't let anyone tell you that that's not a part of what it means to be a person of the promise. Do not take away the privilege of the suffering of Christ from my life that I would not be able to participate both in the suffering and the glorification of Christ. Amen? Come on, are you hanging on? All right. All right. Alright, so that's, that's what we see just at the beginning. We see them uh, getting ready to be delivered from captivity. And so you continue, and here's where the ten plagues happen. And you know all about the ten plagues. I'm not really going to focus on... Any of them but the last one because what I want to do is continue pointing you to Christ even through this whole Old Testament narrative. We have hundreds of years we're looking at uh, and we see these plagues that happen. And here's all you need to know. Each of the plagues that we see uh, in Exodus are in direct relationship to a God that the Egyptians worshipped. And that's what you need to know. They're not just like random plagues. Like what God is doing is says, you trust in this thing, I'm going to tell you I'm the God of that thing. You trust in this, I'm going to tell you I'm the God of that. And so uh, we see uh, in these plagues, uh, the water turns to blood because uh, the God of the Nile, the Nile was really the life of Egypt. And so God cursed, the water turned to blood, uh, and the, the gods that they served, that was the Nile god, showed uh, impotent to the power and the authority of God. Okay, And he keeps going, frogs, gnats, flies, Egyptian livestock, boils, hail, locusts, and uh, darkness. Uh, all those things uh, were in direct relationship with gods uh, that Egypt worshipped, and God saying, I have authority over these things that you call gods, which is just creation of which everything is subject to me. And so we see that in, in the, all the way to the ninth plague, but then the tenth plague, I, I want to zoom in there, and you can uh, really open your Bible to Exodus 12. I know this is a fast overview, but this is going to help us so much as we jump into the Gospel of Matthew. Every time you start seeing the illusions of these promises, you're going to now have a grasp as you walk forward in the Gospel of Matthew to say, oh, I know exactly what they're saying there, and it's going to grow your faith so, so much. So you're going to get there in Exodus 12. some reason I was going to Genesis 12. That's not the right place to go. All right, you're going to get to Exodus chapter 12 and it starts there in uh, the first verse. But but here's here's what's important of that final plague. Uh, the final plague, the plague is the death of the firstborn. Well, who is the heir to the to the pharaoh? His firstborn, okay? And so you understand in Egypt, the biggest god in Egypt is Pharaoh. Pharaoh is God, right? He is, he is the deity, the main uh, god of worship in Egypt. And so the death of the firstborn is God saying, you're not God, I am. Your heir is not God, I'm God. Right? Isn't that, come on, isn't that powerful? Right? Even just that one. If we stop right there, it's so powerful. But it continues uh, because we see the 10th plague promise and we see something that we celebrate even today as Christians called the Passover. And so go ahead and look at Exodus chapter 12. Try to skip over some of it so we don't have to read through all the verses. But just uh, zoom in there. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It shall be the first month of the year. You're going to tell all of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, you're going to take a lamb. And you're going to take that lamb, and it's going to live with you for three days. It's going to be a lamb without blemish, a male a year old, uh, and what you're going to do is uh, you're going to keep it until the 14th day. So for three days, you're going to keep this lamb. It's going to be your child's friend. right? You're going to love it. You're going to feed it. It's going to be living with you. I mean, your children are going to name it. I mean, Fluffy. right? I mean, Fluffy is, is your lamb that's been your pet. Uh, and the whole assembly of the congregation on the 14th day are going to take Fluffy, and they're going to kill it. They're going to kill Fluffy. Hmm. It's already getting it's already hard. Okay. And then you're going to take some of that blood. And you're going to put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread, bitter herbs. They shall eat it and don't leave any of it raw. Eat all, uh, cook all of it with its inner parts in, its legs and everything attached. And you can't let any of it remain until the morning because we got places to go. We're leaving here, all right? And so to prove that point, he says this is how you're going to eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Can you imagine eating dinner fully dressed in your suit? Can you imagine? Like, you got to be ready. Like, we're leaving here. This isn't a dinner to enjoy. This is a dinner of preparation. And that's what's going on. Okay. And, and he says, This is what's going to happen. He says, this, You're going to celebrate the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all of the gods of Egypt. Did you hear that? All the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the house where you are, and I will see the blood. I will pass over you. There's your Passover. I'm going to pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, so we see already that there is a lamb that is being Chosen, a perfect, spotless lamb. Uh, and then there was a curse that was about to be, a plague that was about to befall Egypt, and that was the death of all the firstborn. And God made a promise he said, Listen, I will substitute your firstborn child. For the blood of the lamb. I will substitute that. Everyone else, their firstborn is going to die. Yours will die too. But I'm going to offer you, if you will take that lamb and you will slaughter it on the, on the 14th day. And you will take that blood and you will, you will put that blood on your home, on the lentils and on the post. When I show up, I'm going to pass over you. And the blood is going to be a sign that the Lord has passed over your sins. Because you've trusted in me. Does that sound like anything you've heard before? Maybe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That for all of those who have trusted in the blood of Christ, who've turned away from the sins, turned away from the sins of slavery, the slavery to sin, they turn to Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ washes them clean. And when Jesus comes to redeem all of his people and bring his people to him, all those people who are trusted in Christ, God's going to pass over their sins. Come on. All right, this is the Old t- I haven't even got to the New Testament. Right, that's the gospel in the Old Testament. And so what we got to see is even in the Old Testament, there it is. There it is. The substitutionary atoning sacrifice of a perfect, spotless lamb. Mm, Come on. Come on, guys. And that's when you read in in the Gospels when when, uh, John the Baptist, he sees Jesus coming. And what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like, like, they're not just saying, they're not just using fancy words to get people to pay attention. They're quoting the exodus. They're quoting the, the, the suffering of the people that God brings them to redemption and delivers them through the substitutionary, atoning death of the Lamb. Come on, is that get anybody excited? Just me? All right. All right. And just so you are wondering, like, okay, what does this have to do with the New Testament? Jot down Matthew 26. Matthew 26, 26 through 29. We're talk about what's going on in the life of Aminadab and Nashon. Well, they just saw the predecessor. They, they literally saw uh, what was about to happen to their descent, their, uh, their heir in the, in the long-term future. They're over here, and you have Aminadab and you have Nashon who are sacrificing their own lamb, uh, and God's saying, from your line will come the lamb. That's a lamb in the future. From your line of the promise, I'm going to give you the lamb. In Matthew 26, this is Jesus saying exactly this about the Passover. Matthew 26, starting in verse 26, uh, it says, They were eating the Passover. They were eating the Passover meal, the same one that we just read about. And he took the bread, that bread that God told him to make, that needs to be unleavened. Uh, And after he he blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He said, Hmm, my body? I thought thought this was a remembrance of, of. uh, God taking uh, the Israelites out of, out of Egypt. What are you doing with this? And he says, okay, no, no, it's, it's my body. And, and took a cup, and we had given thanks. He gave it to them, saying this, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Do you see that? It's, it's talking about the Exodus, the blood of the Lamb that's poured out, that's put on the doorpost, and for the forgiveness of sins. Because even in Exodus, you had the sins of Egypt, and even Israel wasn't, uh, wasn't taking out of the group of sin, right? I mean, Israel had to have a substitutionary atonement, and God said, it's either the lamb or it's your firstborn. No one was left out. No one was exempt from the substitutionary need for someone to take their punishment. And he says, and I tell you this, I'm not going to drink of it again, of this fruit of the vine, until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. There's something missing when you're just reading the straight text from Matthew 26 and Exodus 12. And what is it? No one's eating the lamb. There is no lamb. And so you have the lamb being sacrificed in Exodus, but then you have the lamb participating and giving the supper to the disciples. And he says, listen, I am the sacrifice. You're going to eat the leavened bread that our forefathers ate, this wine that you're going to eat that's part of the Passover, that is a sign of my blood because what's about to happen is I'm about to be sacrificed. I'm about to be the perfect spotless lamb. My blood's about to be poured out for your forgiveness. And if you would take my blood and you will put it over your life by turning from your sins, placing your trust in me as the substitutionary atoning sacrifice that you need to be right with the holy God so that when God comes, He passes over your sins, you will be saved just like Israel out of Egypt. And that is point number two. You need to write this, grasp God's plan for deliverance. You need to grasp God's plan for the deliverance. And this is why it's so important for you to understand the word of God because it seems like God has a really good close-knit plan of deliverance, doesn't it? Like He didn't just come up with it in the New Testament, like we saw it already in Genesis 3 at the beginning of, of the record of God working in the life of His people, and we're already in the New Testament, and what's interesting is it's the same process. We can actually go back to right before Genesis 3:15. when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and they knew they were naked, and what did God do? Clothed them in the skins of. And so what happened for their sin? God sacrificed innocence and clothe them with the righteousness of the innocents for their sin, right? It's the whole Bible. It's the whole entire narrative of Scripture. is a substitutionary atoning sacrifice of God giving to us. And so we have to grasp God's plan for deliverance because if we don't, we're going to leave here or you're going to have friends who say, why doesn't God just let everybody in? Like why? Why is it? Like, what do you mean? There's this, we gotta repent. I gotta turn from our sins and trust in Him. Why can't God just be nice and let everybody in? Because God has a redemptive plan, and and God's plan was to redeem people who would trust in Him, who would have faith in Him in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the discipline that He has. That God has a plan to redeem people and have them trust in Him, and it's God's plan, not my plan, and it's God's perfect, just, righteous. Plan. And we got to grasp that plan because Galatians 4, jot that down. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. This is where it gets really good. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Just jot that down real fast. Here's where it all culminated to. And Paul, as he's writing to the church in Galatia, knew this, and it's a great capstone of the gospel. We got all these promises, they were fulfilled through the line of the genealogy of Matthew, and then Paul just wraps it up real nice. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Is that anybody? Anybody remember last week when God promised that there'd be a seed from the woman, right? Who would come and crush the head of Satan? Okay, come on, all right? Born of woman, born under the law. Remember, Mo- Moses gave the Mosaic covenant, which was the law, and you had to be righteous according to the law. Right? And he was born under the law to look, to redeem. Redeem. What did he do to Israel and Egypt? With an awesome, stretched out arm, he redeemed his people. And, he, and they, those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you were sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer slaves. Hearkening back to the Exodus. So I'm saying, even the gospel of Jesus Christ has its origins and has its foreshadowing from the Exodus. And so that's why it's so important for us, even as we look at the Old Testament, you've got to see Exodus as a, as a foreshadowing of what was to come, that Christ was going to come. And we're no longer slaves to sin, but sons. And if a son, an heir through God. You see, scripture, all of scripture, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's unfolding God's plan for deliverance. And everything in the Bible points to that deliverance. And that's why it's so important to find a Bible-teaching church. Because when I'm reading Scripture, I have to ask the question, how does this point to deliverance? How does this point to future deliverance? How does this point to the salvation of Christ? Because I can't just look at a text and, and say, here's the five ways you can be a successful businessman next year. Or here's, here's the five ways that you're going to become a better you Because the Scripture has one plan, and it's a redemptive plan. And it has one message, and it's the message of reconciliation. And it has one Savior, Jesus Christ. And I can't act like David, and I can't act like Solomon, and I can't act like all the people in the Scripture to be the better me. I have to be like Christ. That's the message of Scripture. But even... After deliverance, right? even after they're taking out of captivity, uh, there is the other word that we use, discipline. And this is something that as we, as we get into the end of our sermon that we need to understand, and it is the discipline of God. right? We think that when suffering is over, nothing else should go wrong in my life, or at least we know that is not true. We at least can assert that's not a true statement. You know that when it comes to the way that you see your life unfolding. But you have these thoughts and maybe misinterpretations of Scripture that would suggest that There should be no, like, pain or or discipline in my life. I'm I'm in Christ, right? Who, Who can bring a charge against the elect, right? Like, no condemnation on me. I can't be, there is no judgment for me. There is no discipline for me, right? That's what the Bible says. But it isn't what the Bible says. The Bible says all those things, but in context, what it shows us is that God disciplines those that he loves, and all those he calls children he disciplines. Like a father would discipline their own son, God disciplines us. And so we see this even after the deliverance of, Egypt, uh, of Israel from Egypt. Uh, he uses discipline to purify the hearts of his people. And that's what we see in the wilderness. Right, in the last section of this, we start jumping into uh, Exodus 12 uh, through Numbers and a little bit in Deuteronomy. Uh, it's a, a really high flyover. Here's what you need to know. Uh, The Israelites are now in the wilderness, and this is Moses' last 40 years. Remember, 40 years a prince, 40 years uh, a shepherd uh, in Midian, and 40 years in the wilderness. And so that's how long uh, Moses' life was, 120 years. And so we see in Exodus 12... Uh, the Israelites, they leave Egypt. They flee across the Red Sea, which is a story in and of itself. Uh, it's a sermon series uh, wrapped up in 20 seconds. Uh, then you see Israelites at Mount Sinai, and that's where God gives them the Decalogue, okay? uh, also known as the Ten Commandments. okay. That's where you see God giving uh, the law. Here's how you would follow me. Here's what it looks like to be my people. Here's, here, here's how you ought to relate to me as a perfect holy God. Uh, and so Moses up there. He's on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, uh, And he's getting everything, uh, you know, it related well with God. And he's getting all the laws and the instructions for worship. And he comes down with his tablets. He's like, I can't believe this. We're all about to be with God. We're about to relate to God. And he goes down Here's hears this ruckus. And he's like, what's going on? And, and you have Aaron down there. And they're making golden calves. And they're worshiping idols. And he's like, are you kidding me? Like, I've just been up there with God, getting our covenant put together, getting our contract the way that we would relate to God, and I come back down and all you guys are looking a fool, right? Remember what yeah, right, I told you before? Looking back, we look at them and say, fools. Like, why would you do that? Uh, but in the future, people are going to look back at us and say, why didn't you believe the promises of God? Like, God, God has fulfilled all his promises. You see that. And so there's going to come a time where people are going to look at us the same way, and this is a message for you and I to say, have patience for God's plan, Okay, so he comes down the mountain, uh, <laughs> and he breaks them in half. He's so angry. Uh, and then he goes, gets them, goes back up, meets with God, gets the Ten Commandments. Uh, Israel is actually punished there. Uh, and then after that, you get to the end of Exodus, Exodus 35 through uh, 40. Right, 40? Yeah, ex- yeah, you have Israelites building the tabernacle. Uh, and this is really important for us to know in the scheme of uh, the presence of God dwelling with people, uh, because now for the first time, God says, I want to dwell in the midst of my people. Like, the last time we had that happen was in the garden, when God dwelled with his people. We haven't had that. God has uh, got, become into the presence of people, like Moses, we had to cover, you know, and, and there's times where you see that, but this is the first time since the garden that God said, I want to be with my people. I'm, I'm going to go. So he told them, this is how you're going to do it. You're going to build a tabernacle, and you're going to do it exactly how I tell you. Specifications, colors, measurements, height, depth, the instruments that will be in there, all the things that you will worship me with will be to the exact specification. And they do this out in the wilderness. And in Exodus 40, God's glory fills the tabernacle. Right? That's, a, that's a moment that you should just pause Uh, Because what we should understand, even in the New Testament, remember all the Gospels point to Jesus fulfilling things? Uh, In the Gospel of John, uh, it says that Jesus came and he dwelt among us. Do you know what the word dwelt uh, in Greek means? Tabernacled. It's the word tabernacle. Actually, if you go into the Greek Old Testament, which was the uh, Old Testament that the apostles used, you would have had that same word used uh, in Exodus that God built a tabernacle and he dwelt in it. And in the same way, Jesus came in John 1.14 and he tabernacled with his people. That is a tent. It's also known as a tent or a dwelling. That is, Jesus put on flesh. He put on this tent and he dwelt with his people. So in the same way that we see the Old Testament saying God wants to dwell with his people, in the same way, in the fullness of time, God sent his Son, and he God tabernacled with his people. God dwelled with us. And that's why in Matthew, when Jesus is, when Jesus is born, they said, you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see what I'm saying? All of the Bible is pointing to the fact that God is going to dwell with us, and he's going to fulfill all those things in Christ. Come on, you got to get excited about that, church. Come on. Okay, and you see, then uh, in the whole book of Leviticus, we'll fly over Leviticus in one one line. Uh, It's all about worship uh, and, and our relationship to God, the Levites, all those things. It's all about that. And so you see that in the whole book of Leviticus. And then we jump into Numbers, and really what we're going to do when we get into Numbers is all we're looking at from, and from Numbers is there are two generations. There's a disobedient generation, right, who got to, uh, got to the Jordan River. Uh, they sent the spies over. Y'all remember this one, right? Sent the spies, uh, and they came back, and they were like, nope, nope, I ain't doing that. <laughs> you know, I don't want to do it, uh, except for two people. Who were the two people who said we can do it? Caleb, 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 and Joshua. You have Caleb and Joshua, and they're like, "No, we can do this." And then God, uh, they, they took that first census, and God uh, made them a promise and said, "Listen, there will be two of you who make it out of the wilderness. Every one of you, all the other people who are disobedient, you're all going to die here. You're going to die here. The only two people who are going to make it are Joshua and Caleb, and all your little ones who you were so afraid wouldn't make it through the wilderness." I'm going to lead them through the wilderness, and it won't be anything that you guys did. Your disobedience is going to keep you here for 40 years, and my faithfulness is going to take Joshua and Caleb and all your little ones who you were so afraid weren't going to be able to take care of themselves. They're going to go, and they're going to inherit the land. Mm, come on, all right? And so you see that, the promise of 40 years of wandering, uh, and then you see the second census taking of the new generation. And so that new generation, the census is being taken, Uh and then God tells Moses, you know, Moses, you've been a great leader. You're going to see the land, but you're not going to go into the land, right? And this is where you guys need to say, don't be like Moses, right? You, you aren't here to be a Moses. You're here to be like Christ. Because here's the difference. Moses led Israel out of captivity in the wilderness to the promised land, but Moses wasn't good enough to get them into the promised land. There's only one person good enough to get you into the promised land, and his name is Jesus. You see what I'm saying? This is the problem with saying, I want to be like Moses. No, you don't. You want to be like the person that Moses was pointing to, and his name was Jesus, because only Jesus was able to get you out of slavery through the wilderness into the promised land. So God tells Moses, you're going to see the land, but you're going to die. And then right after that, God appoints Joshua to succeed Moses. Uh, And even from before they even get into the promised land, God begins dividing the land for them so they know what to do. God prepares them, which is really what Numbers and Deuteronomy is all about. God's preparing them to go into the promised land that he had given them. Uh, And then you see uh, Moses uh, dies uh, there uh, in Deuteronomy. Joshua is commissioned as the leader of the Israelites in Numbers 27. Uh, no, yeah, the death of Moses in Deuteronomy thirty-four, and so you know that's where we are. And at this very last moment, the one thing I didn't tell you about was where Nashon was in this whole thing, because that's why we're doing this, right? What is Nashon doing? He's the Lion of Christ. Well, during the wilderness wanderings, uh, each clan, each of the tribes of Israel had a head, had a leader. Guess who the leader of the tribe of Judah was? Nethshon. So even in the wilderness, God already had the seed that will bear in the future the Christ. He was already the lion, the leader of the tribe of Judah. And he was walking through the wilderness, trusting God, trusting in the promises of God, not even knowing that one day through his seed would come the seed that will crush the head of the serpent. You see how all of these promises, all of these promises should allow us, even in the midst of God's discipline, right, to allow us to embrace God's discipline. And that's the third point. You need to embrace God's discipline because we see that throughout the wondering. God could have just as easily overlooked their sin, overlooked their disobedience and say, you know what, forget it. Regardless of what you do, I'm just going to send you over. But that wouldn't have been good for Israel, would it? That there would be disobedient uh, people who didn't trust God's promises going in and taking the promised land. It was better that God disciplined the parents, rose the second generation up of faithful Israel who go into the promised land and take it over and be the people of the promise. And so for us, we need to understand that we've got to embrace God's discipline, that we understand that God's providing, that we need to trust in him. When we don't trust in God, here's what you do. You repent. You repent. You take the discipline of God because you have a loving Father who disciplines you. And wants you to trust in Him, and so we we trust because just as Deuteronomy eight says, God's testing reveals your heart, and God's discipline corrects your heart. And, and that's what you ought to know about the discipline of God: is God tests you, right, to, so you can see where your heart is, and then God will discipline you, right, so that He can correct your heart. How many of us need heart corrections in our life often? Okay. That's what God does when he is testing you. And so we got to understand not to shirk the discipline of God, but embrace the discipline of God that God could fulfill, that I would be standing in the promises of God that he would fulfill them in my life. And so it's the same, like we started, right? It's the same thing about sports or whatever it is that you've committed to. Everything is a sacrifice. Everything, take, everything there is discipline and accountability and suffering and all those things. Uh, and just like whatever it is, In your own life, you got to understand that God's promises, right, that include suffering, that include the discipline, ought to foster in us greater faithfulness to God. It ought to move in us a faithfulness in God's promises that we know that when we abide in Christ, when we walk in the promises of God, God is going to be faithful to fulfill them. And I know that when I walk in the promises of God, I'm faithful to the promises of God, I know that God is going to be faithful to himself, faithful to his promises. And that's what we get to sit in as believers every single day. Let's pray. God, we have uh, all your promises, and we, even as we looked at, 500 years of history within you know this this hour god just We pray that it would give us a growing faith and a growing assurance of your promises for today. Uh, That even though many of us in here would say, well, I haven't haven't heard God speak or, you know, the Bible's been closed for, you know, for almost 2,000 years. Like, how do we know? We see even in the Old Testament, the same uh, principle applied that there was hundreds of years uh, from one book to the other and the reality is God was still working in the in-between. God, you were there and you're working just like you're working right now and you're bringing your promises to bear uh, even in the life of all those you were redeeming day in and day out and I pray God that as we would trust in you even in the midst of the suffering uh, even in that trusting you in obedience that when we see discipline it's a proof of our relationship with you God help us take those things God as we look at the promises that you have and the promises of the fulfillment of Jesus Christ and let us trust in those let us wrap our lives in them that we would have great faithfulness and trust in all that you're doing we pray it in Christ's name amen